It's great to be back with you. I, I say that because we've been away a bit over the last month, really. And what with the extra Christmas program, it seems a long time since I had the privilege, and it is a real privilege and a joy, of being here to preach and to share the Word of God with you. So I'm delighted to be doing that. And I'm looking forward to sharing something that's really big in my heart. Um, I think it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that what uh, we'll get into over the next 30, 40 minutes, what we'll unpick later, and it won't be in great detail, but the the core issues, I would say, have have shaped my life and uh, are the drivers behind so much that I do. Uh, in my life. And I, I, and I, and I think it's the same for, for all of us as we are followers of Jesus. So it's not just a personal testimony, but I, I want to somehow draw you into uh, some of the things that I think are absolutely crucial to understand so that we know how to set our course and how to handle the day-to-day challenges of life. First of all, Happy New Year. It's good to be here together at the beginning of a new year. And obviously, it'd be reasonable to say that the world in which we live has a lot of uncertainty and fear about as people face 2017, 2017. There's uh, quite a lot of uncertainty and concern, and that's partly related to the year we've just finished, 2016, which many would have seen as a slightly strange and uh, disturbing year. There are obviously very big issues going on, which continue to go on, like the hideous war in Syria, the knock-on effects of millions of people displaced from the Middle East, and then that impacting even on our own continent of Europe as, as refugees and asylum seekers crowded in. The continued threat of terrorism, which seems always very near to home as we see things in Paris and Brussels and Berlin, and they get more and more un settling as we find that a lorry could be a, 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 a weapon to kill dozens of people. And those sort of things disturb, rightly so, and unsettle people. And then I guess there was uh, the concentration of deaths amongst celebrities, which I'm not smiling because it's funny they died, but I do think it's strange how people get so disturbed by that. It's almost like a superstitious thing, but it, I, I think it probably touches on the fact that these celebrities are virtually the gods of our age. And uh, so as, as perhaps a little more uh, uh, the uh, mortality of them comes home and people die in larger numbers than they perhaps expected, people are quite upset by it and it makes them a little unsettled. But probably the biggest thing of all were two surprising votes in 2016 when the British voted to come out of the EU and the Americans voted for Donald Trump as their president. And those last two have obviously ongoing impact, profound international impact, and we've barely started working out what it will do. And as you read your paper, listen to your news at the beginning of 2017, the impact of those two is right there, particularly with uh, both of them, actually, with deadlines for, uh, for, for coming out of the EU, getting things uh, set on motion by March with Trump coming in in about 10 days as, as president. And if you add to that the general uncertainties of life, which I think 21st century life does throw up, the fabric of, so, of social living and family life seems all very disjointed sometimes. And people are surprised at, at all sorts of things that happen personally, little shocks and, and fears. And then there's, there's uncertainties in other areas like economics. You add out all that together and it's not surprising that people are quite fearful. 
So what I want to talk about this morning is, well, well what's our reaction then as Christians? What, how do we handle it? Do we just go with the, the general disturbance? How do we handle what's going on around us? And I, before I even get into the three main points I want to make, let, let me just say, first and foremost, as Christians, we should not be surprised that things go a little awry, that things are disturbing and unpredictable, and even sometimes rather fearful. Uh, because the Bible has told us very clearly two things which I think work together. One is that things aren't right in humanity. There's something wrong with us as people. Now, it's not that everything we do is wrong. That's not true at all. There's so many wonderful things happen. But it's like there's a virus in the heart of men and women. There's like, it's like in our core uh, programming, something isn't right. And it causes aberrations and, and, and things to go wrong. And, it, and it's called sin in the Bible. And in Jeremiah, he says the heart of men and women, all of us, is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And I think Christians are right in that view. The Bible's right. That when you look around and you think there's always that danger of something going very wrong, there's, there's sin everywhere. I mean, some of it's rather obvious. Things like murder and hatred and some of the things I've referred to, rape, cruelty, violence. But a lot of it is more subtle and it's much more widespread. Things like envy and selfishness and lying and pride and divisiveness and jealousy and gossip and, 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 and lust and, and greed. And these things are there. They're sin. It's, it's, we've, we've lost our connection with God and we've rebelled against him as a people. And that has brought all sorts of things into the human heart and it is human behavior. And linked to that, on a broader front, the Bible describes the nations like a sea, that they're always in turmoil. Sometimes it's a bit calmer, but there's always some sort of movement and waves, and then sometimes there are very stormy periods. And the nations are like a sea, and that's how it will be until the end. There will come a day when Jesus comes back and there's a new heaven and a new earth and then there's, it, there's this vision and it's a sort of symbolic and yet somehow realistic as well. This vision of the great throne of God and the sea is like glass in front of it. There is peace and stability. But at this time, it's not like that. At this time, the nations are like the tumultuous, ever-moving, ever-changing sea. There is this sin effect which impacts all sorts of decisions. And the Bible says this will carry on until Jesus comes back. And he hasn't come back yet. We are actually in the last days. Not because I'm talking about just these next few years. I'm talking about the phase of God's calendar we're in. We're in the fourth quarter of God's plans for the world. That started when Jesus came. Jesus came died, lived, died, rose again, went back to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit. And, and right from the beginning, and you pick it up in the day of Pentecost, the Bible designates these as the last days. And there's plenty of warnings that these will be days of tumult and uncertainty. I could spend, obviously, the morning on them. I'm not going to. I, mean, I make two passing references. Paul, writing in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, says, Mark this, there will be, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, that word terrible is actually as validly translated violent. And in fact, the only other place that Greek word's used in the New Testament, it's in Matthew 8, it is translated as violent, and it refers to the demonized men at, uh, at uh, Gadarene. Uh, and, and actually, there's a sense in that word of 
human violence aggravated by demonic pressure. So there'll be a, a characteristic of these last days of recurring terrors of violence. That's interesting, isn't it? That's what it says. Jesus, writing about the same period, uh, in, oh, speaking, sorry, about the same period in Matthew 24, says this, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. So Christians are not surprised that things aren't straightforward. And actually, we live in a very good time. You could give endless examples of far worse years than this. 1916 was probably a worse year than 2016 for Britain with the Somme, millions of young men killed, all sorts of things going on in the First World War. And I can give you many other examples, some even from my own lifetime, which were certainly not much better than 2016. But through them all, we have the same answer and the same message. Whatever happens in any year, as we face any new year, there is something we need to get clear right from the start that these last days are also days of amazing opportunity and grace. That the reason God is pausing and waiting before Jesus comes back is that his goal is that the good news about Jesus should go to every single corner of the world. Because in heaven, there is going to be members, from, representatives from every nation and tribe and tongue. And we live, not just in the last days, that's a little bit of a a challenging negative feel perhaps to it, we live in the age of the gospel. We live in the new covenant age, when God has said there is an open door for all who will to come to him. They can be reconciled. The sin problem can be dealt with individually, and then that will affect others. As more people come to have their sins forgiven, their hearts changed, the Holy Spirit in them, that has an impact. Like salt, it begins to hinder corruption. So the gospel is the answer in our day and age. And there's an opportunity for everyone to come to know God as their heavenly Father and be reconciled to him through Jesus. This is also the age of grace. Maybe the last days, but it's an age of grace. Grace is is God's unmerited favor. There's an opportunity to come to know the living God, to have all your own sin and guilt and, 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 and uncertainty and all your own conflict and all the things that disturb you dealt with without you earning it at all. That's what grace means. Dealt with on the basis of what Jesus has done and not what you've done. And there is hope and there is an answer for every human need through Jesus Christ. This is an amazing and exciting time to be alive. Maybe disturbing sometimes, but it's actually exciting. It's a privilege to live after Jesus came, died and rose again. And I would argue it's a privilege to live right now. I mean, apart from the physical benefits of living in our part of the world at this time, despite the fears, we are very privileged. There is the privilege of a sense of acceleration in the kingdom of God. When I grew up, I grew up in quite a healthy little church, but it was about 100 people. And I've been leading churches bigger than that for 30 or 40 years. This church would have been quite small when uh, 30 years ago or 40 years ago when I would have started leading a church in Hastings and, and, and so on and so forth. We can actually, it's not about just size, but it's a marker, isn't it? There's, around us, there's the Vineyard and Christ Church and the Baptist Church. There are many healthy churches. There's a lot going on in our world. We don't always hear about it in the news. And right across the nations, whether it's a career or some South American nations, Brazil, huge churches, some African countries. The gospel is spreading. 
spreading and effective. Yes, the darkness might be getting darker, but the light is also shining brighter. So we need to understand this big picture. Let's talk about it now in a little more detail. Understanding the bigger picture. Just simple, clear things. I want to look at three simple things. I said that I would say motivate me in my life, and uh, I'm going to use uh, scriptures. They'll all be on the screen, actually, with each point. First of all, I want to talk about the game plan. Just briefly, what is the game plan for the age in which we live? We are all in this age. As I said, the Bible would call it the last days. And it's a phase from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. What's the game plan? Well, it's straightforward. Let's read it. Acts 1, verses 7 to 11. Jesus is speaking. Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking, this is the disciples, intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Why I like that passage is just so simple and straightforward and foundational for the church age. It's there right at the beginning and it's very clear. It's there in literal truth and there's a bit of symbolic element to it as well if you like. Jesus commissions his disciples, and we'll come back to that briefly in a moment, tells them what they're going to do. He is removed back to heaven. He goes back into the presence of the Father. And very naturally, and almost slightly humorously, the disciples are standing around, sort of staring at the last place they saw Jesus, looking up. And along come these two angels and basically mildly rebuke them. Why are you standing here looking in the sky? He's going to come back. He said he would and he will in practice they're saying get on with what he told you to do that's really what's happening in that little scenario and that is still the game plan for the age we're in Jesus has made it very very clear what's his church to do we are to be his witnesses at home in the neighborhood and throughout our nation and to the ends of the earth be my witnesses and keep doing that generation after generation by implication keep doing that until I come back again. And don't spend too much time speculating as to when Jesus will come back. Don't stand around trying to study the sky to work out what's happening to Jesus and when will he come back. It's not for you to know the times and the dates. You get on with the job you've been given to do. The game plan is, I think, very simple. Jesus has died, he has risen again, And he has provided an incredible opportunity for every man and woman and child in the world to have the hope of restoration of their relationship with the living God. Anyone from any tribe, nation or tongue can come to know the living God through Jesus Christ, have their sins forgiven, be delivered from bondage to fear and death, come out of the dominion of darkness and be transferred to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light and love. What an opportunity the gospel gives us and everyone of hope. The gospel is the best message of hope in our world, isn't it? It is. 
And Jesus commissioned his disciples to go and tell everyone. Here's just one verse that Paul picks up his angle on it, but just really re-emphasizing it. Romans 1 verse 16, we just popped that up. Paul, writing a few years later, says, a few years after what we previously read, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, which is shorthand for saying it's for everyone. And he says, it is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes. Oh yes, there's a sort of condition, a big condition. They need to hear it and believe it. Put faith in Jesus as your saviour and Lord. But the gospel, never be ashamed of it. It is the hope of the world for everyone and anyone. Whatever their race background or class background, anyone who believes will find it's the power of God. The key task then is very, very simple. Be witnesses for Jesus, keep doing it until that same Jesus comes back again. Well, that's the game plan and it's the right and good one and we stick to it. We need to know a little more. So I've got three things I want to emphasize. The second one is the key player in this age we're in. The key player. Now, this, these verses are a little more complicated apparently, but I, I will, uh, I hope, not not bamboozle you. This is verses from Ephesians. The key player, watch for it, is actually, believe it or not, the church. The church of Jesus Christ is the key player in the age in which we live. He, she rather, is the one who is going to make the difference as she does what she's called to, be, to do. Let's read these verses from Ephesians 3, verses 6 to 12. This is Paul again. This mystery is that through the gospel, which we've just been reading, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Now he's saying all who come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, whatever their background, Gentile or Jew or any other background, they come into one body, the body of Christ. And Paul goes on, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of power. Although I am less than least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. The boundless riches of Christ are available for every person in every nation. And to make plain to everyone, everyone needs to understand this, that there is a new administration from heaven. There's a new covenant. That's not the word used here. There's a new opening, an opportunity for all. This was kept hidden in the past by God who created all things. But it's now become evident is the implication. Let's continue with the next screen. God's intent was that now, in the age we're in, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, Jesus, through faith in him, Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That last sentence is worth a hallelujah, isn't it? In Jesus, through faith in him, in the days in which you and I live, there is an open door to heaven. In Jesus, through faith in him, anyone and everyone who does that, comes through him, can approach God with freedom and confidence. Wow! That is good news. And the main agent for bringing this good news is the church. The church is the key player. 
If we don't tell them, nobody else will. If we're not shining, the dark will be darker. We are the light. We, not just us, we who are the part of the universal church. We who belong to Jesus, his body, we are part of it. The church is the key player. Now, that might surprise you, but never despise the church. She is at the center, the church of Jesus, the center of history. She is the key player from heaven's perspective. Angels and demons are watching what happens to the church. And in fact, we are, I believe, the followers of Jesus, the center of spiritual conflict. I don't know if you're aware how many Christians were killed for their faith last year. I don't even know the number, but it's thousands were persecuted. Just reading some things recently. Thousands in the Middle East, of course, but in some other places as well, and in some African countries. Christians are the most persecuted group in the world. And yet, they're also, in some ways, the most uh, resilient and flourishing and, and multiplying group. Because there's a mystery about it. It's Jesus' church. And it's the center of demons and angels' attention. She, the church, is at the eye of the storm when it comes to spiritual affairs. Don't be naive about yourself or our church. Satan would love to destroy the church. Angels watch what we're doing, and the Holy Spirit is active amongst us. This is where it's at in our day. God's people together, worshiping, preaching the gospel. This is the center of attention of heaven. God loves his church. Jesus loves her church. The church is part of the message as well as the messenger. Did you notice that? His intent now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Basically, through what we say and what we do, we are to demonstrate the heart of God. We're to bring the kingdom. We're to show what God's like by what we're like and what we do. We believe God's a forgiving, healing God. Well, we'll be demonstrating that. He's a God of mercy. He's a good, good father, we sang. We will show that by our actions, our reactions, and by how we speak and how we talk. The church is the agent for bringing the gospel and indeed bringing in the kingdom. Jesus loves the church. We are his bride, his battling bride. We're not yet at that sort of wedding ceremony in heaven. We're now in the battle with the warrior bride. And Jesus is with us and for us as we fight to extend the kingdom of God and preach the gospel. You're born into the church by the Holy Spirit. You don't get in by just growing up in it or signing up some form or some filling in some uh, form or something. You get into the church by new birth, by putting faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes into you, you're born again, and you are then part of this wonderful community, this church that Jesus is building. Jesus loves the church because she is the one he has committed himself to. She is the vehicle of the gospel. And so I want us to love the church as well. Can I just say that? Don't rubbish the church. Don't criticize church. Pull back from that. Yeah, we're full of mistakes and flaws, as are all people who are not yet perfect and complete. That which is perfect has not yet come. But the church is still the best community on the face of the earth, the place to be. It is a great privilege to be in the church of Jesus Christ. Never despise that. Never turn your back on it. Never go wandering off, I don't want church, I don't like church, I'm not going to church. You are being very foolish. 
It's a great privilege to even belong to it. It's by the grace of God you're even allowed in because you've come to know Jesus. Now, please treat it with respect. The church does manifest itself in two obvious ways. The universal church, all who follow Jesus and are trusting in him. And, of course, local churches, and we're one, which are millions of them across the world. And that's exactly how Jesus saw his church. There are two references he made to the church. One was uh, in Matthew 16, one's in Matthew 18, obviously not going to go there now. And one is talking about the universal church when Peter makes his confession, you Lord are who you say you are, you're the son of the living God, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, well done, you haven't worked that out for yourself, God's shown you that. You know, and on that, I, I believe that passage means on that statement is the foundation rock of my church. The church is all who understand who Jesus is, believe that he is who he said he is in the Bible, have understood that and had their eyes open and have said, you're my Lord and Saviour. They're in the church. That's wonderfully inclusive. Actually, it's exclusive as well because that's the only people in the church. You've got to have made that confession of faith in your own way and said, Jesus is my Lord and Saviour. And once you're in there, we who are in the church have got to treat other members of the church with great respect and dignity and honour. Even if we disagree on detail, we must never rubbish our fellow members of this glorious band, the church. It's a nation. It's a people. It's a community that Jesus is building. But the other time Jesus referred to church, which is in, I think, Matthew 18, he talks about his disciples to a sort of uh, slightly hypothetical in a way, although it's all too near to life, two of his disciples having a dispute with one another and having to have it resolved with the help of a church. And if you read it, it's a terribly sort of a mundane thing, really. It's not that dramatic. It's like it's, it's clear that Jesus expects his disciples to work out their faith in small communities or local communities of believers who, who work at their relationships together, who actually think it's important to get those things right, and who can be a coherent body who know one another and bring resolution to difficulties. Read it for yourself. It's very practical. But Jesus expects those two elements to be in his church right up to the end. Big picture, getting people saved. Small picture, local communities and bodies that are working out discipleship and relationships day to day. Now, we now need to know, and this is my last section, what's the strategy for all this working? We can see the game plan, that there is a, a plan to preach the gospel to every nation before the end comes. And it's a hope for everyone. We understand that church is central to it. The church is a key player in what God is doing in the world today. Both the universal church and our outworking at local level. But what's the strategy? Let's look at the last point I want to make, the winning strategy. And this is another passage, and I believe this is in, sorry, this is in Ephesians 4, and I believe this is about the strategy for success for the church. Let's read it. It's Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Next screen. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. 
Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, that's the church, the whole church, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, this is a wonderful passage, and we could spend ages on it, but it's, it's basically saying that the church is not an incoherent mass that just tumble along together. It's like a body. It's going to work. It's going to work effectively, and every member has got to work in that body, and the truths behind this are, in a sense, they're universal, but they're Paul is writing this to local churches, and they're actually about how local churches get in on this big picture. How do we preach the gospel? How do we reach the nations? How do we effectively do stuff that causes the heart of God to be glad, causes the name of Jesus to be raised up, causes men and women to find the hope and the help that the gospel brings? And this is a little bit of how it works. Jesus said, I have given gifts to my church to help her do the task. Gifts that we might broadly call leadership, gifts that bring care, direction, feeding, equipping the church. Now there's a variety of gifts, this isn't exhaustive, but the key ones mentioned, or the main ones mentioned here are apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor and teacher. A couple of quick lessons. It's obvious that these gifts work in teams. The New Testament hasn't got a lot of time for one-man ministry, I must say that. I mean, sadly, pretty, ev- pretty well every denomination in our own world, including probably many of our own type of churches, seem to have a bit of an obsession with who is the one man, one woman nowadays at the top. Who's the one leader? I don't find that very strong in the New Testament. I find teams of people. I find teams of elders, teams with Paul. Yes, there's a leader to a team, and the leader's important. I'm not denigrating them. But, but the, the, there are teams that go out and serve the church, and there are teams that lead the local church. And then you have someone who leads the team. Steve leads the team that leads this church. And Guy leads the apostolic team that I belong to. But the team is important. It's not just the one person, it's the team. That's how the New Testament thinks. And Jesus sends teams of gifting to build his church. They're not all the same. You need the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher. You need these different types of gifting that work together to help the church do what? Do what she's called to do, to equip God's people for works of service, to build up the body of Christ, that we can preach the gospel, that we can reach the nations, that we can do the stuff God's called us to do. And one of the ways that works is that every member has a part to play. Some are gifted to bring probably leadership and direction to that, maybe we could broadly say. Now, I believe these gifts operate today. I know the one that would be controversial would be the word apostle, and I haven't got time to address it fully. But just to put it in context and help you to understand my thinking, the word apostle in the New Testament simply means sent one, sent by God. And it's used in a number of different ways. It genuinely is. You can check it out for yourself. Jesus is called the great apostle of the faith. That's in Hebrews. And, and he is the great sent one, sent from the Father. Nobody's going to re- replicate Jesus. It's Hebrews 3.1. And, and basically, he is our apostle of the faith. Then there are the 12 who Jesus picked to be with him. And they are clearly seen as unique. And of course, they're unique. They are the foundation stones of the universal church, if you like. Revelation 21, 14, the 12 apostles of the Lamb are seen in a sort of symbolic picture as the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. 
Fine, that's right. And they're never going to be duplicated. But as you read your New Testament, you find the word apostle used quite, quite flexibly, to be honest. It's used of people like Barnabas, Silas, Apollos, Paul, who is always a little bit of a mystery, which group he fits in. But they are used for other people. And even, and you can check it out if you want to, in 2 Corinthians 8, there are a group of people in Paul's team, and he uses the word apostolos in the Greek to describe them as representatives of the churches that work with him and are sent on on team with him. So it clearly has got another use, which is more dynamic. And it's about not so much the... It's, it's not putting these people on a pedestal with Jesus or with the 12, but they're people who do foundational work in local churches, people who plant churches, people who are missionaries. That's another word used in our histori- historically by, by Christians, but it's sort of like apostles. People go into new territory and bring the gospel into new places. People who are pioneer evangelists, people who lay foundations, people who oversee and help churches to keep on course and... Uh, I guess sometimes those people have been given other names, like moderators and bishops and things. And and church history has thrown up all sorts of confusions. But we've always needed people who help local churches to do what they're supposed to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? And who take us out of the parochial, take us out of the small-minded, and give us an eye to the nations. And get us out there on our big-picture mission. Now we, coming right back to us, we would see that role as one for what we call apostolic teams. That doesn't mean we think Guy Miller is on the same uh, footing as Paul or Peter, not remotely. But it does mean that we see there are people gifted to bring a bit more vision and direction to a local church and help and, and sustain, sustain it, really, more than we can just manage ourselves. Now, the group we belong to, it's a family of churches. They don't all have the same name. They're all autonomous churches, but they group together. Ours is called Commission, which is a fairly new name, and it's rooted in the Great Commission, Jesus, go to the nations. I mean, Guy has got a real heart for that, as you know. And so that's the echo in the name, the Great Commission. But it's actually grown out of a bigger group called New Frontiers, which still exists as an umbrella for those different groups. But Terry, who led that, is now in his late 70s. And so he handed over to younger leaders, younger apostolic leaders. And Guy Miller is one of them. Now, Guy has a team of different gifts who help this family of churches, which is about 50 or 60 in the UK and another 50 or 60 in India and and Iberia, Spain and Portugal, help them to to keep on the vision of reaching the nations, growing, and also help them to keep on course, basically, not to hit the rocks. Maybe if there's a dispute in in the church or a division, these people would help. Or if we need to appoint new elders, these people would help. Now, I'm one of these people. (laughs) I work on Guy's Apostolic Team. I'm one. I would see myself as primarily a pastor teacher, but I do have a bit of a prophetic role, and I think I'm probably a bit of a prophetic pastor teacher. I don't think... I've got a bit of evangelist. Well, maybe I'm all five. No, no. (laughs) I'm just wanting to see. You can't be too watertight with this, can you? But there's a team together that do this, and it's Guy's team working in commission. Now, for practical purposes, just to inform you, I help oversee a number of churches in the UK, 
Chichester, Portsmouth, Southampton, Bristol, Hook. Uh, and I, I get quite involved, uh, as Steve would tell you, uh, a lot involved uh, at times, too much sometimes. I'm also, Marion and I, uh, Marion involved with me in several of them, but Marion and I particularly have had some involvement with the Madrid church plant in Spain, which is going well, but had a difficult year, and we were in there to strengthen them and guide them and help them, and they're doing really well now. And we work into Bangalore and Mumbai in India and a little bit into Nasik, although I'm trying to phase that on to somebody else. And Marion and I will be going to Bangalore in February, where there's a church plant which is flourishing and growing, Bridge Church, Bangalore, and we'll be involved there. We get involved, I get involved in leadership teaching and training as well. But I'm probably a little more of a pastoral ministry rather than apostolic. But I am involved in helping strengthen and probably, I hope, giving wisdom to these churches as they grow. We've been directly involved from here in planting churches, Eastleigh uh, Junction Church, Life Church Southampton, both doing really well, by the way, very encouraging. And uh, we've also sent quite a chunk of people to places like Bridport, uh, Wimborne Church Plant, um, Newbury. And all of these people, I can assure you, are highly valued. I mean, I know they are, because people tell me that. So this church has been a resource base for commission for years. And that doesn't just mean we give generously money. It means you use me, my time. But also we've got mature Christians here who often, at the right time, have been a massive asset to one of the church plants. Now, that's all very healthy and very important because that is how we are connected to the bigger picture of what God's doing. We've obviously got the gospel element to preach in Winchester and its environs, and we need that big time, and we need all the resources we can get to that. By the way, we don't just get input only from commission. I think that's the majority, but Steve, I, and the rest of the elders don't feel it's weird, you know, it's got to be a commission speaker. We don't. We had Natalie, by the way, from somewhere else, got Angela Kem coming. I think we'll probably have others. We have the links with Compassion, CAP. You know, these are all helping to serve us. I'm not sure quite where they fit in the Ephesians 4 thing, but you don't get into boxy thinking. But these are all, we're linked with uh, Steve in Miracle Street. We need to up some of these things and help us to get engaged in a bigger picture. There's Ellie, I'll keep thinking of them as I speak, Ellie Cross in Zambia. It's not just about commission, but somehow Guy and what he brings will stir us up and help us and equip us for the bigger task. And then probably we'll be more enthusiastic even about the other things and we'll understand and have a heart for a cap thing or for a Zambia with Ellie because we've already got our eyes up to the world, not just down on our detail. Because that's what apostolic does. And as I come to an end, I just want to say that I'm not able to turn you to it, but there are in 2 Corinthians a number of passages that lay out the heart of Paul. One is in 2 Corinthians 10. We're not going to turn to it. But you will find in 2 Corinthians 10, if you want to look, it's only a few verses, 15, 16, around there. And what he says to churches, this is Paul speaking as an apostle. He wants to increase their faith. He wants to involve them in his field or sphere of apostolic ministry, which is not every church, he understands there are other churches that don't relate to him. There are many other churches, even in Winchester, that don't particularly relate to Guy and company. That's fine. We're good friends with them. We support them, as Paul did these others. But then there are those who are in our family, if you like, in our sphere. And, and Paul says, I want to catch you up in that so that 
we can expand together to regions beyond. That's a phrase he uses. Regions beyond where we've so far gone. And I think that is the heart of Guy Miller. Guy would want to catch us up in reaching nations. We've got a really good, uh, I think it's quite a good vision statement thing that we've just tried to summarize. That We want to see thousands, this is commission, we want to see thousands of lives transformed through hundreds of churches in tens of nations. And, and we haven't particularly put a time scale on that, but we're looking to see many, many saved, to see people saved, baptized, and added to Hope Church, to see churches planted and adopted into this family of churches in the UK, and to reach nations. So I, I go to, to Spain and Portugal and to India, but I have been involved with Serbia, and actually Guy and somebody else are going to pick that up, and I suspect we'll end up being linked with Serbia this year. So we're looking to expand what we do, and Guy would catch us up in that. Now, to be very practical, I would value your prayers for what I do. And I'm, with John Attil's help, I'm hoping to get a little sort of sub-site. I don't know what you'd call it. There's no technical term I understand. But like a, a sort of thing where you go onto our website and you can find out what John Groves is doing. And I might do a blog. Oh, once I work out what a blog is. Um, <laughs> no, I've just got about a pretty good idea, I think. And it might have on there what I'm doing. And I really, once we've done it and John's helped me and we launch it, I'd really value it if you went on there. Because that's a way I'll communicate what I'm doing. Because I'm doing it for you and on your behalf and with you, not on exclusive. And, and it's part of us. And, and so I value you knowing what I do and I value you praying for it as well. And if there are other things you practically want to do, can you make the effort? You're planning your summer holidays. Do you know, Marion and I were doing that last night. We were actually looking at where we might go for a holiday. And so I know people do that. Plan in West Point. Plan in West Point. It was great last year. It'll catch you up in what we do together. Yeah, I know it's not a full-on holiday, but it's not, it's not, it's not a concentration camp. <laughs> I mean, it's not a torture chamber. Come on. It's quite fun. We're all together. We're all enjoying ourselves together. If the sun shines, it's pretty good. And you can always stay in bed and breakfast. That's what Mary and I do. And come in all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in the morning. Good morning, everyone. How are you, campers? Um, and, uh, it's great. It's worth doing it. Honestly, can I really encourage you? It's just one little practical response to get part of the bigger thing. Understand a bit how we caught up in a bigger thing. Now, we are only a little bit of it. It's like a massive war and we're just one little battalion. But we at least want to do our bit properly, don't we? When we're fighting the enemy, we want to make him run. You know, if we're planning a church, we want it to be successful and effective. Look, if we're helping churches in India, we want to help them. They are doing well, by the way. We want to help them do well. I don't want them crashing and burning. I don't want them ending up in just a nothingness. No, I'd let them succeed. I've got real faith for church. I've seen many churches grow and flourish over a period of 20, 30 years of ministry. I've got faith. I've got faith about uh, Portsmouth and uh, uh, you know, Chichester, and Chichester's only been there about 12, 10, 11 or 12 years. It's nearly 350 people. You've got faith to see churches grow and flourish. Amen? Amen. And one last thing, because you may be sitting here saying, well, I'm not even part of this church. And so what's all this commission stuff? Well, whoever you are, whether you belong to this church or not, I think there are two simple things you can do as a result of what I've said this morning. All of us. 
One, be a witness for Jesus wherever you are. Do not be ashamed of him. Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Jesus will meet the needs of the people you work with. Many of them may reject him, I understand that, but you are still offering them the best thing that could help them if you talk about Jesus. Be sensible, don't be awkward and clunky and weird. Be loving, offer to pray for people, you know, be friendly. Remember Paul, he was able on Mars Hill to just adapt, but in the end he got through and talked about Jesus. Don't be afraid of being a witness for Jesus by words and deeds. That's one. And the second thing is, be actively involved in a local church that is caught up in a worldwide mission. Find a church, if you don't live here, or you do live here, find one that is active with the gospel and with looking outwards to the world and join it and be part of it. So that's the response this morning. Be a witness for Jesus be an active member of a good, healthy local church.